Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Taylor Hansen. You know Taylor as the middle brother in Hansen, the band he's been in with his brothers Isaac and Zach since he was nine years old. Taylor was only 14 years old when their big hit, Mbop, was released in 1996. I can't tell you how many times I've had to redo this part. Saying Mbop is not as easy as you think. But tomorrow, Hanson releases their 11th studio album, Red, Green, Blue. You can just breathe. You are no mistake. Though you feel Taylor is from Oklahoma. Oklahoma actually has a state meal. I don't even know if that's a thing in other places, but there's an official state meal. And it's a big one. We'll learn all about it from the Oklahoma Historical Society. Taylor had a food awakening as a teenager, traveling around the world with his band. His culinary world went from black and white to color when he tasted a perfectly ripe, in-season Italian tomato. So I'll chat with Dr. Harry Klee, professor of horticultural sciences at University of Florida. Dr. Klee's professional mission for the last 27 years has been to make grocery store tomatoes taste good again. Kind of sounds like a hat. I did get tomatoes for my license plate on my car. <laughs> it says tomatoes? Yes. But first, my conversation with Taylor Hansen. Unfortunately, I couldn't get a studio that has a camera, so I'm not going to be able to have mine on. So it's going to be a one-way street. No worries. I mean, back in the day, we used to just have phone conversations. What a, what a concept. Maybe we should just write each other letters, and this interview could take six months, and I could just ask yeah. one question, and you could write me back, and we'll just go from there. Yes. And I'm, I'm interested in that. Taylor is one of seven kids, and now he and his wife have seven kids of their own. You know, my wife and I, we got married very young. You know, I've been working since I was really young, so everything's happened early. We have this big family. We have all these kids. You know, we have a lot of chaos around us, but neither one of us ever thought we would be those people. We both were very much interested in the career path and adventures. And um, maybe that's why we have seven, because we're we're not planning, you know, like some people do when they're, I'm going to have these many kids and this is my trajectory. We, we've always been very, you know, all about the kind of the life experience, not thinking, you know, this is the box of my family plan. We found that we also just really just enjoyed our kids and enjoyed sharing life with them. And I would say I saw that in my family dynamic growing up. You know, one of the biggest differences is I'm almost 10 years younger than my parents were as far as having kids. We've come of age as parents. I'm about to be 39 and I have a 19 year old. So we were 19 and 20, you know, so we've had a very interesting experience being parents young. has been kind of different than the experience I know my parents had. Yeah. And you have quite the spread, too, because I saw that your first son was born in 2002 and then you had a daughter in 2020. So it's like one's out and then let's start over again. We have a one year old, we have a three year old, you know, we have a nine, 13, 15, 17, 19. So we You've have got this whole range. Yeah, it's it's uh, man, it's an adventure. Taylor and his brothers have been touring the world for more than 20 years. 
but they all still live in their hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's a state that I know nothing about the food. Is there like an official food of Oklahoma or something that if you're from there, you'd say, oh, my God, did you grow up eating blank? It's very rugged here. And it's there's a bootstrap, figure it out kind of energy and a lot of, you know, a lot of agriculture history, a lot of real real life cowboys. Most towns are 10,000 people or less. Tulsa and Oklahoma City are like million, about a million plus. So those are like the big cities. So the food culture is definitely going back to hearty, heavy, you know, comfort food. Um, probably the most unique thing is chicken fried steak is like very much an Oklahoma thing. If you don't know what it is, is basically a really low quality piece of steak, something that needed to be pounded out, something that would have been a, you know, not particularly tender. And they, they just tenderize it like crazy and then batter it and fry it. And then it's cooked, you know, cooked like a fried chicken would be. It's quite amazing and incredibly terrible for you. Chicken fried and, steak um, is something that I could eat in my 20s, like go out at night, wake up, go to brunch with your friends. And now if I eat it, I am wrecked. Like I have to sleep for 14 hours afterwards. I can't have a functioning day because there's, you know, usually like a white gravy, just like blanketing oh, it all yes, over. That is true. The gravy, <laughs> there are people that do them as sandwiches as well. Like that happens sometimes. There's a couple spots that do that. But it's not, I mean, that's not an everyday thing. I mean, Oklahoma actually has a state meal. And it's a meal that's so large that you it would feed a state. It reads like Thanksgiving on the range. I mean, I don't have it listed, but it, it has everything in it. I mean, I don't even know if that's a thing in other places, but there's an official state meal in Okay, Oklahoma. wait, I have to look this up now because, like, what does that mean? It's how it would be a state bird or a state flower? Yeah. What are we going to do when the governor brings people together? Like, like well, we got to have a state. Like, this is the official meal. Oh, I found it. Uh, do you want to know what it is? Yeah, read it. Go okay. For it. Well, before I go, do you have any guesses of what's on the list? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it has. I think it has mashed. It has potatoes of some sort. It has a. I think it has green beans on it. I think it has. So far, you're zero for two. Oh man. The official state meal of Oklahoma consists of fried okra, cornbread, barbecue pork, squash, biscuits, sausage and gravy, grits, corn, strawberries, which is the state fruit, chicken fried steak, pecan pie, and black-eyed peas. Sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you need a wheelbarrow to get yourself out of the room after that. But And it says Oklahoma is the only state that has an official state meal. Some states have one or more official foods, but you guys were like, no, no, no. We need a whole dinner. This is the meal you eat after you've been out moving, you know, cattle around. That is like a covered wagon, straight up <laughs> yeah. Western expanse, you know, meal. Yeah, when you're uh, doing the real Oregon Trail, but in Oklahoma, yeah, you're actually, yeah, you're you are you are the pioneer, and you're hungry as hell. Lots of states have an official state food. Connecticut designated itself as the pizza state, which is pretty rude considering New York's official snack is yogurt. Louisiana has a state meat pie, the Natchitoches meat pie named after the Native American tribe. And in Massachusetts, they have a state dessert, a state cookie and a state donut, two thirds of which are Boston cream pie. Missouri's state dessert is the ice cream cone, just the cone, no ice cream. And Vermont has a state pie, apple pie, but no joke, 
In the official designation, it says their apple pie is required by law to be served with a glass of cold milk, a slice of cheddar cheese weighing a minimum of one half ounce, or a large scoop of vanilla ice cream. But if my Googling is correct, Oklahoma is the only state to have a complete state meal. I was so intrigued by this because I did not know that a state meal even existed. So I'm thrilled to talk about this with you. Great. Yeah, we have we have all kinds of stadium rooms. It's crazy. Oh, we'll have to talk about that. That's Larry O'Dell, Director of Communications and Development for the Oklahoma Historical Society. Our legislature does this, and it came about in 1988. They made it a state meal day when they passed it. And why did they decide to do this? What was the significance? I think it's just the legislator got that bug and he wanted to to create an official state meal and he got enough support to do it. Before this, was this a meal that people would eat all of the components of? Was this something common or did they piecemeal this together to concoct a state meal? They piecemealed it together and they wanted it to be for breakfast, lunch or dinner. So the biscuits and gravy is a lot of what we eat for breakfast all the time. Have you ever eaten this entire meal at once? Oh, no, I have not. I sure haven't. I don't know of anybody that has. Oh, really? So on, <laughs> yeah. on the day, like there's this one day of the year, can you get it at a restaurant? I have not seen a restaurant that does this. I'm so surprised by that. I feel like it, you guys are really missing out on a big opportunity to feel very yeah, full. Correct. I wanted to know a little bit more about why these dishes were selected to represent the state. Yeah. Is fried okra a common food in Oklahoma? That is something we eat a lot of. I don't know if you've had it, but it is delicious. How is that connected to Oklahoma? So when Oklahoma was the five tribes, which were the Chickasaw, Cherokee, Creek, Seminole, and Choctaw, were forcibly relocated to present-day Oklahoma, they brought with them a very Southern lifestyle. They came from the Southeastern part of the United States, and they also brought with them their enslaved people, which, as you know, brought okra to America. And then when Oklahoma opened to non-Indian settlement, a lot of people came up from Texas, Arkansas, and the South. So a lot of our foodways are, are very Southern. So just to clarify, you said that the Native people took slaves? Yes, those five tribes they came from southeastern United States and had assimilated the southern culture. Next on the list, cornbread. Cornbread, again, southern. Cornbread was also a staple for our western heritage. A lot of the cattle drives and, and things out on the plains. We're a weird state in that we're considered the plains, we're considered southwest, we're considered southern. But a lot of the cowboys and the ranches out here cook cornbread. So it's part of our culture. So Larry and I were going through the list, and over and over again, he said the same thing. Most of these foods were brought to Oklahoma by Southern transplants or by the Native Americans. Squash and corn is a staple for those nations and in Southern cooking also. And corn, it's used in all kinds of Oklahoma recipes, fried corn, corn on the cob, moonshine. Just like Taylor mentioned earlier, there is one dish that ties the whole state together. Chicken fried steak combines both of our cultures. It combines our Western heritage and our beef and our cattle drives with Southern way of cooking where they deep fry things in flour or cornmeal. And then it also, a lot of the folks that settled were of German descent and it's not that far off from Schnitzel for a chicken fried steak. So every Oklahoma town has their favorite chicken fried steak restaurant. It's kind of how you judge food in some of these cafes around the state is order their chicken fried steak and, and, and see how good it is. 
does it tend to be a diner staple or is it on other menus as well? It's a diner staple for sure. But I ate at a place this weekend that took a, a really good cut of steak and made it into a chicken fried steak. And one reason you have a chicken fried steak is to kind of hide the bad cut of beef that you would get. It's usually a round steak that you've really hammered and then deep fried. You have to have the white gravy on top of it. So there's even something else that covers up the taste of the steak. <laughs> so did you have chicken fried filet mignon or something like that? There is a restaurant here in Oklahoma City that does that. Yeah. Oklahoma may have claimed chicken fried steak as a part of its official state meal, but the Texas legislature named the small town of La Mesa, Texas, as the official home of the chicken fried steak. All because of an article that ran in the New York Times in the 1970s claiming that chicken fried steak was invented there. But it turns out that's not actually true. The journalist who wrote that article made up the entire story. I tracked down that journalist and got the whole story for our chicken fried steak episode, the last meal of singer Mary Lambert. It's such a good story. It is very odd. And I highly recommend going back to the archives and listening to the Mary Lambert episode. On top of having an official state meal, Larry says they have all kinds of other designations, culinary and otherwise. Like we have an official state steak, which is the ribeye. We have an official drink, which is milk. What are some of the non-food things on the list? We have official fur bear, which is the raccoon. Fur bear? Fur bear. -er. <laughs> fur bear. -er. It's hard to say. What is a fur bearer? It's a mammal with fur. Oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, game animals. Do you think dogs, most people in Oklahoma know that there is a state meal and what it is? No, I don't think most do know. Not unless they go to the Oklahoma Historic Study website or just follow politics closely. I guess you'd have to follow 1988 politics. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Coming up after the break, Taylor Hansen reveals his last meal in the exact moment when he became interested in good food. What would your last meal be? Oh my gosh. Um, last meal. You know, Italian food is really was my awakening to great flavors and you know traveling and suddenly experiencing really fresh ingredients the coastal sort of fresh italian naples you know just what the power of less ingredients but applied and combined in, in a way that's really delicious that's probably what gets my heart going pitter-patter the most my, my, my grandmother used to say you know eat dessert first you appreciate it more at the beginning of the meal. So, you know, jump to the good stuff. Oh, I love that. Um, she sounds like she was probably real cute. Yeah, she was funny and she was loved to bake. So tiramisu is on that list for sure. Might, might have be starting it first? To I, I don't know if I actually would have <laughs> okay. it first. But, uh, I do love tiramisu. Love great coffee. A litmus test of restaurants, you know, for me is always to order the coffee as a, you know, measurement. You can, so obviously great Italian espresso. Ely would be my go-to there and... I think food-wise, probably some kind of angel hair with a pesto sauce, keeping it simple. Burrata is like a love language, you know, caprese, but with burrata. So yeah. you've got the combination of the freshest tomato and the with olive oil and balsamic vinegar and fresh basil and the burrata, a nice toasted focaccia bread to mix in there. 
the tomato thing is real. I mean, you know, growing up in the States, you're used to just year round getting a tomato in your sandwich and it's kind of pink and mealy. Yeah. And so and I it's didn't gross. like tomatoes until I was 28 because I'd never had a good one. So I was afraid of them. And it wasn't until I was dating this guy and he had a garden and he gave me a sun gold tomato, you know, like the little cherry orange one off the vine. And I was shocked that it could taste sweet and have a good texture. And so now I can eat tomatoes, but only good ones. I'm a tomato snob. But like you mentioned that until you went to Italy, you felt like you hadn't really had a tomato before. Absolutely. I mean, having this awakening to food, you know, particularly, I mean, I have a picture of sitting at the, as a touring band, you know, you have these odd experiences that are out of the ordinary for a lot of people. But, you know, I'm 15 years old, I think, and you're at a restaurant looking over, you know, the harbor there and Naples is stunning, you know, oh my gosh, it's such a picturesque space. And you order this caprese salad, which I'm curious about, and it's just tomato and basil and, you know, fresh mozzarella and olive oil and balsamic vinegar, you know, and I just remember putting that in my mouth and being like, what is this? Like, no idea, you know, that it could taste this way. And there's so much more flavor in the food. I've never been good at it myself, but I love the idea of having that in your garden and having those key elements that you can keep fresh because it just changes your whole your whole food experience. For his last meal, Taylor Hansen wants tiramisu with Eli espresso, angel hair pasta with pesto, a caprese salad with fresh, ripe Italian tomatoes and burrata, and some toasted focaccia. Since you were so young when you were touring, you know, you're 15 and you're having this culinary experience with the tomato in Italy, which is not so common for a 15-year-old. No, not what was, common. Not what common. was it like then to go back home to Oklahoma and, you know, you have this family with a whole bunch of kids and, you know, your mom cooked very classic things like you said, sloppy joes and grilled cheese. Were you and your brothers in the band suddenly kind of alien to the rest of your family who was eating this way? Well, I'm the only one that particularly had that awakening, you know, oh, okay. um, Isaac's age is a little bit, I mean, he's more interested in, in trying things, but, you know, Zach was very content until I think probably 25 to meat potato, you know, is pretty much the diet that he lives on. He's less interested in the adventure, you know, more interested in the comfort side. And that's just kind of who people are, right? Um, but me, actually, my, I remember my, my wife telling the story of, my wife's from Georgia, so land of real Southern food, Atlanta, her asking me about food and me saying I loved Italian, you know, that was my you know, go-to. I mean, Italian and Thai, you know, Chinese, you know, French, you know. But even for her, you know, growing up in Georgia, growing up in Atlanta, you, she didn't th- think she'd really been to a, just a straight-up Italian restaurant, even at wow. you know, 16. The idea that a you know, 16 or 17-year-old, because we've been dating since we were teenagers, would be like, I have this specific interest or specific food, was different from that. You just age-wise and, you know, generationally, you're kind of, you know, you're eating whatever's in front of you with the family, you know, until you start to go out on your own. So food just became more of an expression and a discovery um, element for me and it still is. And that's one of the things I love about it. Were you able to turn your parents on to the things that you discovered when you were traveling or did they stick pretty steadfast to, to what they were used to? My folks are not particularly adventurous in food. They never were. Yeah. Uh, so not not really. I mean, I became the go-to, hey, Taylor, is there a restaurant that's good in Chicago? I'm like, oh, yeah, well, this is where you should go. You know, or is there a good restaurant in Tulsa? You know, <laughs> you know, my dad's never, he's like a utility food guy, you know, food is fuel. And my mom's, you know, loves, just loves flavor and richness, but it's not about culinary experience, more about 
kind of feeding the masses. I mean, she's just at the center. She's now grandmother of like 24. There's always like humans coming in and <laughs> Everywhere. out. Everywhere. You know? <laughs> My mom is incredibly outgoing and she does not want to be trapped in any situation, in any room, in a kitchen. So it's funny to be a mother and a grandmother, which you think of as being very, you know, the homemaker side of things, which is very much what she has been, but she's also always moving. And so I think like cooking is more about like what's going to get everybody to show up and keep people fueled, you know? Yeah, yeah. Before our interview, I got an email with some of Taylor's thoughts on food. And he said, quote, I don't think I had actually tasted a real tomato before Italy. Horizons were broadened, and I've been a curious foodie ever since. And if you've ever had a freshly picked heirloom tomato or almost any tomato grown in season and picked close to where you ate it, you know there is no comparison to the mealy, pale, out-of-season tomato slices you get on burgers and deli sandwiches and the subpar tomatoes sold in grocery stores. And this got me thinking, why are grocery store tomatoes so bad? Probably the simplest way to explain it is just uh, the old standby saying, follow the money. That's Dr. Harry Klee, University of Florida professor of horticultural sciences. He has spent decades researching and growing and trying to decode the secret to growing a better commercial tomato. The fact is that most commercial growers are not paid for flavor. They're paid for yield. So the more round red objects that they put in a box, the more money they get. They do not get any more money, whether that thing tastes like cardboard or whether it tastes good. So the system is set up in such a way that they do what they need to do to make money. You know, the reality is that most consumers don't want to pay more for their food. You know, when we did surveys, we sort of asked, how much of a premium would you pay for a good tasting tomato? Only 20% of people surveyed would pay a dollar extra a pound for a really delicious tomato. The vast majority of people want a tomato that is cheap and they want it year round. So the industry has positioned itself to provide that need. So you end up with a product that is cheap to produce, ships well, and lasts forever on the shelf. And you know, you get what you pay for. Not a very good tomato. You know, of course, there are people who will pay more, who will go and buy the heirloom tomato at Whole Foods or whatever at the public market, but the cost is much higher. Why can't it be cheap and also taste good? Well, we think it can, and we're working on that and very hard. But the simplest answer to that is that what the breeders have done is to select for larger and larger tomatoes. They've taken, let's say, a great heirloom tomato and added water. So they've diluted out all of the nutrients and particularly the sugars. Flavor is the combination of taste and smell. And smell is absolutely critical for flavor. Much of what we have worked on over the years is to understand the, the volatile chemicals that give you the aroma 
So what they've done is they've diluted out all of the sugars, the acids, and the volatile compounds to the point where you're just basically added water. And so that's why it's so tasteless. It's just been a progression over the last 50, 60 years or so, probably even further than that. Breeders have increased the yields of tomatoes by about 300%. And virtually all of that increase has come at the the cause of just adding water. (laughs) Hmm. The thing that, you know, you hear a lot about different fruits and vegetables from the grocery store and why they're not quite as good as what you get from the farmer's market is that you hear that they pick them when they're not ripe and then just let them ripen off the vine. But it sounds like these tomatoes, no matter what, they don't have the good stuff inside of them, no matter when you pick them. Yes, that's absolutely true. You compound the effect to some extent by picking them when they're immature, but that's not the major reason. The major reason is the genetics. And that's what we've spent the last 20 years trying to understand is what are the genetics that determine whether that tomato tastes good or not. You said that people demand tomatoes year round, but sales must be good with these bad tomatoes if they continue to sell them at the rate that they are. Have people just accepted that this is what a tomato is? Are people buying all these bad tomatoes? Yes and no. The Florida tomato industry, their market share has dropped dramatically in the last decade. Pretty much the food service industry is what keeps them alive. There's been a dramatic shift towards greenhouse produced products. Are they good tomatoes? Better than the field-grown stuff, but they're not really great. To answer your question, the industry is losing sales to poor flavor, but they refuse to accept it. I've spent 20 years telling these people, sales are driven by flavor. Dr. Klee and his team have cracked the tomato code to create great-tasting tomato plants that home gardeners can actually purchase at a nursery. Is there a plan to make the grocery store tomatoes better? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the, the reality is that I don't consider our work to be successful until we've got a great tasting tomato in your local supermarket at a reasonable price. The home garden market is actually much easier. The next challenge, that supermarket challenge, is much more difficult because until we fundamentally change consumer behavior, make people go into the store and say, all right, I don't want that crap. I'm going to pay for a really good tomato. And we basically have spent the last five years trying to put the flavor back into these modern commercial varieties. And, And I think we're actually really close. They're in the field right now. And in June, they will be tested with our consumer panels. If we're successful there in producing a substantially better flavored tomato, that the yield is not compromised, then I consider it a success. Dr. Klee confirms that tomatoes are the most complained about produce item at the grocery store, followed by those big, tasteless strawberries. When we come back, Taylor talks about the family beer business, and I hit him with a lightning round. probably most famous for the song Mbop that came out 25 years ago. And since the song is now over 21, it makes perfect sense that they turn it into a beer. Hanson Brothers beer is available in several styles, but the very first beer they brewed is called 
Mm, hops. So that particular style uh, was the first style we produced, manufactured, and released in 2013. It's a pale ale. It won a gold medal in the World Beer Championship, and nice. it's, a, it's a little bit more of an English-style pale ale. It's, interestingly, not as hoppy as you might think. It's not like a, a West Coast IPA. It's a pale ale, so it's very hoppy in the pale ale spectrum. Can you still buy mm hops? Is that still available? Are you guys still making it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. We're not making a ton of it and we've never pushed for a huge distribution. We wanted to just have it available where mostly regionally and not put ourselves in a position where we were bleeding out to try and be the you know the biggest craft beer company in the world. But but we do have a, a following and uh, you can get it in, in Oklahoma and in Kansas and in, in Florida and several other states. Before I let Taylor go, we did a little lightning round. What is your favorite culinary childhood memory? The first thing that comes to mind, cherry pie. My mom's mom's cherry pie. Like that's the strongest, like, oh man, you know, I can taste it. What is a restaurant that when you're on tour, you're looking forward to going to that city so you can go to that restaurant? Gosh, there's just so many. I'm thinking Hattie B's in Nashville. Nice. um, Hot chicken. And Moza in L.A. is amazing. Nancy Silverton's Italian place. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What is your perfect birthday cake? My perfect birthday cake is probably a pie. I'm not a huge cake fan. I love a cake donut. You know, cinnamon and sugar cake donut is to die for. And what's one thing that you always put on your writer when you're on tour? Like a green juice, you know, like uh, used to be Oddwalla or Naked Juice, like that super powered but very tasty green smoothie juice. I wish I could go back in time and interview people in the 70s or 80s that were in rock bands because every single person when I ask what they have on their writer, it's always healthy. It doesn't matter who it is, what genre music. (laughs) It's always like, oh, we have a vegetable platter. We have green juice. We have kombucha. And can you imagine, you know, like talking to Slash in the 80s of like what would have been on his writer? It's just funny to me. What brand of cocaine do you have? (laughs) I didn't mention all the beer or the whiskey or... But yes, those things are on there too. Yeah, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll has like gotten a little bit of like a green juice tinge. It's all still there, but like with a little healthier twist. Yeah, exactly. Yoga, kombucha, and rock and roll. And that was Taylor Hansen's last meal. Hansen's new album, Red, Green, Blue, is out tomorrow. You can check the show notes for a link. And Taylor is the founder of a nonprofit in Tulsa called Food on the Move. Food on the Move is really all about ending food deserts and bringing access to fresh produce in, in neighborhoods that don't have it. Thanks to Larry O'Dell with the Oklahoma Historical Society and Professor Harry Klee, the tomato doctor, who leaves us with one final piece of advice. Never refrigerate your tomatoes. The tomato is a living organism. It's constantly replenishing those volatile chemicals. And what happens is that the genes that are responsible for making those volatiles shut down. Can you explain what volatiles mean to people? Um, Those are the things you smell. So those basically go away. And like he said earlier, if there's no smell, there's no flavor. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, take one teeny tiny second to leave us a review. We would really, really appreciate it. I'm on Instagram at HelloRachelBell. And if you have a guest to recommend, a comment to make, or you're a company who wants to advertise on the show, send us an email. Go to YourLastMealPodcast.com. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. 
Is there a certain kind of squash that you see the most? Um, Jello squash, fried squash. Did you say jello squash? Yellow, yellow. Oh. Well, uh, that would be cool, though. Yeah. When they're big hit, mbop, mbop. Let me just check your level real fast. Uh, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? Um, I really haven't had breakfast. I've just had coffee and coffee. Okay. What'd you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, I didn't eat breakfast. Coffee. What'd you have for breakfast? <laughs> what did I have for breakfast? I had a homemade cherry muffin made with cherries from my own tree. 